You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. Water-neutral Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola received its wake-up call to the principle of circularity in 2002 when residents of a village in India's southern state of Kerala accused the company's bottling plant there of depleting and polluting groundwater. Two years later, the local government forced Coke to shut down the plant. In 2006, their situation got worse when a New Delhi research group found high levels of pesticides in Coca-Cola and PepsiCo's locally produced soft drinks, resulting in several Indian states banning their products. Coke denied any wrongdoing, claiming that borehole water-fed farming was mainly responsible for lowering the water table and that the pollution claims were unsubstantiated. However, the public relations battle had already been lost. Speaking to Time magazine in 2008, Jeff Seabright, the company's president of Environment and Water Resources, admitted that Coke had mishandled the controversy. If people are perceiving that we're using water at their expense, that's not a sustainable operation, he said. This realization resulted in a serious shift in Coke's strategic positioning of its CSR towards tackling water as priority number one. It's great that companies used to hand out checks for scholarships or to clean up litter, said Seabright, but increasingly the real relevance is using the company's core competence to address issues that are of societal concern. And for Coke and the communities in which it operates, the concern is water. About 2.4 billion people live in water-stressed countries, according to a 2009 report by the Pacific Institute. Water demand in the next two decades will double in India to 1.5 trillion cubic metres and rise 32% in China to 818 billion cubic metres, according to the 2030 Water Resources Group. China, where Coke sales have been in double-digit figures, is home to roughly 20% of the world's population, but only about 7% of the world's water. That means that there are around 300 million people living in water-scarce areas. According to a 2007 World Bank report, water scarcity and pollution reduced China's gross domestic product by about 2.3%. Meanwhile, Coca-Cola sells 1.5 billion beverages a day in over 200 countries, using about 2.5 litres of water to produce just one litre of its products. Coke realized that it needs to be seen as part of the solution, not part of the problem. As a result, it put its resources into water at an unprecedented scale. In 2007, the company announced that it would spend $20 million over five years to help the WWF preserve seven of the world's major rivers. It also set up the $10 million Coca-Cola India Foundation, which began installing over 4,000 rainwater harvesting programs and providing clean drinking water to 1,000 schools across the country. More significantly, in June of the same year, 
CEO Neville Isdell flew to Beijing and pledged that his company would become water neutral. Coke uses the term water neutral to describe the ratio of groundwater usage by any user against the quantity put back into nature. It is a contentious topic, and not everyone believes it is possible. But the scale of Coke's ambition, and indeed the progress it is making towards its targets, is going a long way to advancing the circularity agenda. Speaking in 2009, Coca-Cola's India Director of Quality and Environment said, Our target is to neutralize all groundwater usage by the company in India by the end of the current calendar year and become water neutral for all products and processes by 2012. Already the company had achieved a replenishment level of 82% on its annual groundwater usage in India and their groundwater usage ratio had improved over 42% between 1998 and 2008. Having learned the lesson of circularity, CEO Neville Isdell makes it clear that this is not about charity. He says water is the main ingredient in nearly every beverage that we make. Without access to safe water supplies, our business simply cannot exist. To which Seabright adds, we sell a brand. For us, having goodwill in the community is an important thing. The second largest beer manufacturer in the world, SAB Miller, has also been working hard on understanding their water footprint and launched a joint report with WWF in 2009 called Water Footprinting, Identifying and Addressing Water Risks in the Value Chain. The report reveals that in South Africa, SAB Miller's total water footprint is equivalent to 155 litres of water for every one litre of beer, while in their check operation, the overall water footprint is significantly smaller, at 45 litres of water to every one litre of beer. In both cases, the vast majority of this, over 90%, comes from the cultivation of crops, both local and imported. Efforts like these by SAB Miller are being supported by the Water Footprint Network, which launched its Water Footprint Manual in 2010, covering a comprehensive set of methods for water footprint accounting. It shows how water footprints can be calculated for individual processes and products, as well as for consumers, nations and businesses, and includes methods for water footprint sustainability assessment and a library of water footprint response options. Carbon Neutral at Tesco Another illustration of circularity is the trend towards carbon neutrality, which has been embraced by multinationals like Dell, HSBC and Tesco. Let's look at Tesco, the third largest retailer in the world and a member of the Prince of Wales' Corporate Leaders Group on Climate Change. CEO Sir Terry Leahy believes the company is uniquely positioned to and I quote, make sustainability a significant mainstream driver of consumption, because 17 million customers visit their 1,900 stores every week. The challenge is significant as Tesco emits 4 million tonnes of carbon a year, according to the Guardian newspaper. One of Leahy's first steps was to pledge in 2007 to plough 
half a billion pounds or around $770 million over five years to turn the fringe green lobby into a mass consumer movement, starting with a donation of five million pounds or $7.7 million every year to help fund academic research into greener consumption. With this money, the Sustainable Consumption Institute was established in partnership with Oxford University to develop an accepted measure of the carbon footprint of every one of the roughly 70,000 products that Tesco sells. Leahy thinks of this as establishing a carbon calories system. Speaking to the Independent newspaper, he said, There aren't many things that keep me awake at night, but this is one. Next, in 2008, Tesco launched a plan to reduce the carbon emissions from each of its stores by 50% by 2050, using 2006 as a baseline, as well as to be carbon neutral as a company by 2050. Explaining this target in an interview with Meet the Boss TV, Tesco's Global Technology and Architect Director Mike Yorworth said, We see our customers, consumers of the world, as playing a huge role in moving us towards a more sustainable economy and more sustainable consumption in a world where in 30 or 40 years' time, people will need to live on possibly a fifth of the carbon they use today. In 2009, Tesco extended the pressure to its suppliers, requiring that they achieve a 30% reduction in carbon footprints of their products by 2030. By then, the company had already published the carbon footprints of 114 of the products it sells with special labels and was hoping to expand that to 500 products by the end of the year. This was not just about public relations. According to Leahy, a low-carbon strategy is vital if we are to minimize the risk to our business, which includes the physical threat of climate damage to our supply chains, the resulting economic damage, and the serious effects of rushed and inefficient regulation if we fail to act in time and governments are forced to take draconian action. Most recently, in 2010, Tesco launched its first carbon-neutral store in Ramsey, Cambridgeshire in the UK. The sustainable design is timber rather than steel-framed and uses skylights and sun pipes to cut lighting costs. It also has a combined heat and power plant powered by renewable biofuels, exporting extra electricity back to the national grid. In addition, the refrigerators have doors to save energy and harmful HFC refrigerant gases have been replaced. The store costs 30% more to build, but it uses 50% less energy, which Leahy believes is a business case in itself. To coincide with the store opening, Tesco also announced that it intended to spend more than £100 million, or $150 million, with green technology companies. What's more, with sales up 10% in 2010, it does not appear that its bold carbon strategy is harming business. Ultimately, the principle of circularity is a path to profitability. Encouragingly, the idea of carbon labelling is spreading beyond the big retailers like Tesco. Pal System Consumers Cooperative Union, a Japanese home delivery service provider that primarily serves local farms, started to show food mileage – 
using the POCO unit on some of the products in its May 2010 catalogue. The cooperative also aims to improve Japan's food self-sufficiency and to reduce carbon dioxide emissions caused by food transportation from overseas. Waste not, want not. Besides water and carbon, another critical aspect of circularity is waste. Zero-waste strategies have their origin in the thinking of Walter Starhill of the Product Life Institute of Switzerland. So let's look, finally, at a few examples of pioneers in this field. Zero Waste is a goal that several companies, including Fuji Xerox, Sony and Hewlett-Packard, are committed to. Many of these organizations are supported by associations like the Zero Waste International Alliance, which declare their mission as being to promote positive alternatives to landfill and incineration, and to raise community awareness of the social and economic benefits to be gained when waste is regarded as a resource base upon which can be built both employment and business opportunity. There are also books like Paul Palmer's Getting to Zero Waste, which give inspiration to aspiring zero wasters. Since Fuji Xerox was the first company in the industry to introduce products containing recycled parts to the Japanese market in 1995, let's look at some of their accomplishments. As a result of implementing an integrated recycling system, Xerox realized savings of $45 million in 1999. In August 2000, the company became the first in Japan to achieve zero landfill from collected used products. Based on this success and recognizing its global responsibility, Fuji Xerox extended its efforts to its sales and service territories in the Asia-Pacific region and China. In particular, the company introduced recycling systems in Thailand in December 2004 and then in Suzhou, China in 2008. The Thai operation called Fuji Xerox Eco Manufacturing has been especially successful, collecting used Fuji Xerox products such as copiers, printers and cartridges from nine countries and regions in Asia-Pacific and disassembling them and sorting them into 74 categories, including steel, aluminium, lenses, glass and copper for recycling. Over the period from the operation's launch to 2010, the company collected approximately 131,000 units of used products and generated 21,000 tons of recycled resources. By 2010, Fuji Xerox Eco Manufacturing was able to announce that it had effectively accomplished the zero landfill goal by recycling 99.8% of used products and consumables in the 2009 financial year. And on a larger scale, in 2009, at the annual National People's Congress in Beijing, Chinese Prime Minister Wu Jintao signed into law a rule on e-waste that's been characterized as China's version of the European WE, or Waste, Electrical and Electronic Equipment Law. Around the same time, the first electronic products recycling supermarket in China was opened in Wuhan, Hubei. According to CSR Asia, the supermarket will target electronic products like waste or old telephones, washing machines, refrigerators, TV parts and so on. 
the supermarket was set up by the district government and a battery recycling company. Circular Urban Design It is important to note that zero waste is not only a corporate goal. For example, Brazil is the world's leader in aluminium can recycling with a rate of 96.5%. Communities can take up the cause as well, and indeed many have. A 2010 report by the Christian Science Monitor gives one recent example. Tucked almost imperceptibly into cedar-blanketed mountains, an hour's winding drive from the nearest metropolis, Kamikatsu seems an unlikely spot for a revolution. So the article begins. But try to throw even a candy wrapper away here, and it's quickly apparent that residents are radically reshaping their relationship to the environment. This is a town in Japan that is singularly focused on banishing waste, all waste, by 2020. The 2,000 people of Kamikatsu have dispensed with public trash bins. They set up a zero-waste academy to act as a monitor. The town dump has become a sort of outdoor filing cabinet, accepting 34 categories of trash, from batteries to fluorescent lights to bottle caps. The town now has an 80% recycling rate, up from 55% 10 years ago, as compared with the US national recycling rate of about 34%. Japan is not only innovating on solid waste, but also on air emissions. In 2009, a citywide environmental accounting service, EcoHANA, was launched for businesses in Naha City of Oginawa. EcoHANA is an online service based on data input through personal computers and mobile phones. This is the nation's first service to enable bookkeeping of both finances and CO2 emissions for households. The data from shoppers are processed automatically based on CO2 emissions per unit sales, according to the 2000 consumer price basis of the embodied energy and emissions intensity data, which was calculated by the National Institute for Environmental Studies. In the Middle East, we have Mazdar City in Abu Dhabi, which is positioning itself as a global clean technology hub powered by renewable energy and demonstrating the world's most sustainable low-carbon urban developments. Mazdar City plans to house around 1,500 clean tech companies with 40,000 residents and 50,000 commuters, providing a research and test base for renewable energy technologies. The fact that it is being funded by oil wealth may be considered as one of the great swords-into-plowshares turns of history. In a separate development, in July 2009, 12 European companies launched a €400 billion Euro initiative to plant huge solar farms in Africa and the Middle East to produce energy for Europe. To give these and other initiatives momentum, the World Bank launched an Innovative Cities Dialogue series in 2010 to help mayors and policymakers share innovations to improve urban life across the globe. One best practice case that emerged was Marikina in the Philippines. With a vision of making a town with only one paved road into Little Singapore, Marikina's leaders set out to clean the rivers, eliminate graffiti and build thoroughfares and waterfront parks 
where families could gather and feel secure. It is examples like these and many others that show that the principle of circularity is not wishful thinking, but a practical strategy for achieving sustainability and responsibility, economically, socially and environmentally. And together with the other principles of CSR 2.0, creativity, scalability, responsiveness and glocality, these inspiring innovations and bold actions are ushering in the new age of responsibility and with it a new kind of susponsible, if you like, capitalism. Without a doubt, however, achieving this vision requires change on a scale and with an urgency that has seldom been witnessed in human history. So the question remains, how do we make change happen? <laughs>